Hello, everyone. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is Valerie, your host, and boy, am I excited to have a special guest on with me today. Welcome, Taylor Petrie. How are you? Very good. It's great to be here. It is so good to see your actual face. Those of you who listen to my podcast frequently know that he is one of the people that I reference so frequently because I'm obsessed with his book, Tabernacles of Clay. I really have mentioned it probably even in the last like five episodes, two or three times, Taylor. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> well, wow. I'm honored. I think, thank you so much. You're so welcome. It's so good to have him here. He is, um, as many of us may know, he is a scholar and he is the chief editor of Dialogue, which is so cool. I am a new member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network, and that's actually how we got, we got connected. So I'm so happy to have you here, Taylor. And before we do anything, I'd like to have you tell my audience a little bit about your upcoming publication. Sure. Yeah. The uh, As you mentioned, uh, dialogue is one of my main things that I do every day, but I'm also the co-editor of a new volume that's coming out with the University of Utah Press called The Bible and the Latter-day Saint Tradition, which has got over 30 essays of really great content of biblical scholars who are engaging with how the Bible has been interpreted in Latter-day Saint tradition, as well as LDS scripture and uh, and history. So we're really excited about this new volume. Wow, that is going to be amazing. I am very excited to read it. So everyone go out there and go get that book because we need to support Taylor and the good work that he does. Today, actually, you. <laughs> you're so welcome. Today we are, well, Taylor and I have plans to do uh, a few things together. For the next two episodes, though, we are going to focus actually on the Book of Mormon. And the reason why I'm interested in this topic is honestly because I'm a bit of a student myself of the scholarship and the history of this, the controversy of the Book of Mormon. Is it historically accurate? Is it more a naturalistic or more uh, a work of 19th century literature? And as I've been digging around trying to figure this um, riddle out myself, I stumbled across uh, Taylor's um, analysis of this through the Dialogue podcast and invited him to come on to kind of walk us through this, because I'm assuming if it's a little overwhelming for me. It might be a little overwhelming for some of you out there because boy, there is a lot of scholarship out there, a lot of controversy, a lot of different ideas, thoughts, feelings. It's a bit of a loaded subject for people in the uh, Latter-day Saint faith tradition. And so Taylor, before, like, let's go ahead and start by talking a little bit about the, there's sort of, sort of two camps and maybe even more, but there are two main camps um, of, of scholars or believers who have things to say and have strong opinions about the Book of Mormon. Can you open this up and just sort of talk about those two different camps? Yeah, so it's it's a complicated uh, field in, in more recent years, but in many ways, as, as you mentioned, the Book of Mormon as a controversial text goes back to the very beginning. Um, and you sort of have uh, a sort of two different receptions of the Book of Mormon in those early days. One, that it's a fraud. Uh, the Golden Bible is, you know, an invention. It's uh, it's got all these problems. Uh, it's theologically, you know, problematic. It's historically problematic. Uh, these are claims that are made about the book right from the start. Uh, and of course, Latter Day Saints who who engage the book, who who uh, who pray about it, who believe uh, in the claims of Joseph Smith, take it as uh, not only a divinely inspired text, but one which uh, tells a sort of true history of the American continent and uh, the the native inhabitants of of, the, of that continent. So we've got kind of these two different 
uh, uh, ways of approaching this text, again, right from its start, it sort of announces itself as a controversial text in 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 this moment. And uh, for uh, for the last two centuries of its uh, of its existence, nearly two centuries now, um, we've been kind of continually fighting about that. Uh, as as you mentioned, as you allude, it gets a little bit more complicated in more recent years, as um, you know the the inside and outside boundaries of how people approach this text and its historicity have sort of gotten a little bit more blurry. But uh, but yeah, there's definitely uh, you know sort of two two major approaches. It's true. It's historically true. It's accurate, or it's not. It's a it's a nineteenth century uh, fraud. So what you have kind of opened the door for is an invitation for us to sort of look at the varying sides of this question. And also, it's interesting. Um, I'm going to link in the notes his podcasts on the dialogue podcast so that you can actually listen to. It. It's basically like a really beautifully done lit review of a lot of literature that has come up come about would you say taylor in what you described is it from about the 60s to about 2020 am i remembering that correctly yeah so so in the the podcast episodes that you're referring to i look at just the scholarship in dialogue a journal of mormon thought which has been really one of the central hubs for scholarship on the book of mormon uh in in those uh decades and and dialogue starts to be published in the 1960s book of mormon scholarship in its sort of modern iteration really begins though in the 1920s. Um, And that uh, sort of starts with, uh, you know, there are of course a lot of critics who had always been around, but there are kind of uh, two or three folks that that begin to kind of uh, approach the Book of Mormon from a more scholarly perspective. Uh, B.H. Roberts, who is in the church leadership, a major uh, intellectual force at the time. Um, Sidney Sperry is a uh, biblical scholar trained at the University of Chicago, uh, goes on to then teach at BYU relatively conservative uh, uh, perspective on on a lot of these issues. And then Hugh Nibley, who, who is a contemporary also, um, he starts writing mostly by the 1950s or so. He starts writing on the Book of Mormon and really launches a whole new school of thought uh, on the Book of Mormon. So when dialogue comes into the picture in the 1960s, there's a little bit of a kind of established uh, a framework of the way that people are, are thinking about the Book of Mormon, the beginnings of a kind of new apologetic approach to the Book of Mormon. Um, there are a number of failed projects that have started in the 1950s also where they uh, the church actually sends a bunch of people down to Central America to kind of find these Nephite lands, you know, the New World Archaeology Project. And, you know, that that uh, it turns out to be a little bit of an embarrassment. And oh, so, wow. um, you know, so that, that that sort of becomes a, a dead end, at least for a little while. But uh, but yeah, there there that so there had been some scholarship that has sort of been culminating uh, before the 1960s. And, and the literature review that I do sort of, as I said, starts in the 1960s. But there are some earlier precedents that had sort of set the stage a little bit. Okay, so stay with those. You mentioned three main names, uh, Nibley, uh, B.H. Roberts, and uh, Sperry, I believe. Yes. Remembering that right? Okay, so talk us through. You're talking about scholarly reviews or scholarly uh, interpretations of the Book of Mormon. So we're not necessarily talking, I'm not trying to say these are mutually exclusive, but they're not necessarily just apologetics, right? So stay with what their scholarship maybe is, or maybe maybe it is apologetics. Maybe answer that question for me. Yeah, no, there. I, I would characterize all three of them as taking an apologetic approach, okay. uh, with maybe the exception of B. H. Roberts, who, um, uh, you know, there there are big debates about this, and there are several articles uh, about it. Who seems to not be very convinced by the apologetic arguments that had been put forward. Um, 
Now, uh, you know, by the time Nibley is writing in a generation later, he sort of is the answer to those doubts that B.H. Roberts and others had had, had had um, uh, attempting to provide a more plausible scenario here for for the Book of Mormon. But um, but yeah, they're they're attempting to sort of answer with a more sophisticated degree of scholarship. They're studying ancient languages and ancient cultures and ancient texts and and they're trying to answer the critical uh, perspectives that have been put forward by the Book of Mormon, that the Book of Mormon was, um, you know, a, a compilation of other, you know, novels and other texts that has sort of been circulating. Ethan View's view of the Hebrew, Ethan Smith's view of the Hebrew. They're, you know, there's sort of various <laughs> theories that people have been putting put forward, and um, the, this sort of new approach uh, that these new scholars are, are offering are is a set of new apologetics to kind of. Um, bring the level of Mormon responses to uh, to these accusations uh, of the you know insufficiency and, and incredibility of the Book of Mormon uh, to to a new level. So, how successful are they in their with their contemporaries and with especially with the opponents, those who are sort of more in favor of the naturalistic approach to the Book of Mormon? How do they do? Yeah. That? It's always a kind of swinging back and forth, you know, and mm. as one group gets uh, gets better and more sophisticated, the other group comes up, you know, with better and more sophisticated arguments as well. Um, so uh, so there is this sort of like, you know, constant tension that's happening there. And and as we'll get to a little bit later, a number of people who try to kind of cut through and say, mm -hmm. oh, well, you're both right in this way or that's, you know, and try to find a, a solution to the impasse here. But um, but really. Uh, they, they do take it, uh, you know, by the time we're in the 1950s and 1960s, we do start to see um, a, a lot of uh, kind of creativity mm. around, especially around Hugh Nibley by the time we get to him, of uh, developing a kind of plausible scenario for the Book of Mormon as an ancient text. And that inspires a whole school of thought that still is around today. I mean, many of you Nibley students are are still alive and are in their, you know, 50s or I guess they're more in their 70s and 80s now in some <laughs> cases. Yeah. But uh, but they were directly inspired by him and kind of took his approach and ran with it. Um, and uh, and so it's it remains a very influential model today, even if, you know, uh, not everybody accepts every claim, of course, mm -hmm. in that school of thought. But but Hugh Nibley's sort of school of thought remains a dominant one among uh, among among several scholars today. And so you would say that and I, I'm openly confessing I haven't read Hugh Nibley or maybe a little bit, but not enough to speak intelligently about his work. Would you say that it is still a credible scholarly approach to the Book of Mormon by some academically trained scholars in ancient history or ancient scripture? I, um, I, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't recommend anybody read Hugh Nibley uncritically okay. today. Um, and uh, I think even among his his uh, students and acolytes, uh, you know, several would would agree that that a number of the historical claims and interpretive claims that he makes don't necessarily hold up today. Mm -hmm. Again, he sort of is an inventing a new field uh, here and he's kind of yeah. like trying a bunch of stuff. Right. Um at the same time, I would say that the paradigm that he offers remains influential for a subset of, uh, of LDS apologists and scholars. And that paradigm, I guess I would say, is to um, find parallels 
between things that one sees in the Book of Mormon and things in the ancient world. And mm -hmm. that takes a number of different forms from trying to find, you know, names in the Book of Mormon that that, you know, also show up in, in the ancient world in, in some other, you know, ancient languages and say, aha, how could Joseph Smith have known, you know, Pacumini would be also a name or, or sure. something like that. Right. Um, or, uh, you know, uh, finding uh, rituals described in the Book of Mormon that look like rituals in, in the ancient world. You know? So it sort of is a method more than any one particular claim that, that he's making of, again, sort of trying to de describe a, um, a, 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 a cultural and historical link between the world that the Book of Mormon describes and antiquity. Okay, I'm learning so much. Like I'm hardly even blinking because I, I did not know any of this. This is really, really interesting. You actually brought up a a phrase that um, launches us into the next part of our conversation that I want to have, which is there are a variety of different arguments that the opponents and the proponents for the history. Let me say this word right: historicity of the yes. Book of Mormon. And I'd love to just walk through each of these with you, and have um have you talk us through what each side of this conversation would say. And you started with the idea, um, which sounds like it may be um, one of the, one of the insects like that Hugh Nibley may have been the one that sort of in, in, invented this idea, or maybe at least brought it to this scholarship is this idea of um, taking parallels between book of Mormon scripture and between biblical scripture. And then the opponents call this parallelomania. Can you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this, this becomes the, the accusation that in, in some respects, both sides end up leveling against one another. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so people will, will point to the kind of paradigm that Hugh Nibley puts forward and that represents that we have, we haven't kind of talked about the successors to Hugh Nibley, which is the foundation of ancient research in Mormon studies or farms, uh, which, yeah becomes really a kind of important institution. It's very well funded. Uh, it gets incorporated ultimately into BYU and a lot of BYU professors are, are a part of it. And then it's not just Unibly, then it's literally kind of like an army of people at that <laughs> point that are kind of putting forward this, this new paradigm. And, and um, you know, again, taking like the scholarship to new levels and requiring people who, who are critical of the Book of Mormon as a historical text, as an ancient historical text um, to, to then answer that. And they have to, you know, so, again, that's why there's always this little, this back and forth. Um, but the accusation that uh, that critics of the, of the Book of Mormon would make against Hunibly and uh, and the the Farms School in general that that he represents is that the parallels that they are drawing are rather weak or mm -hmm. rather generic, um, and uh, and and that they're not necessarily. Um, they're they're sort of superficial, I, uh -huh. I guess, you know. And so this accusation of parallelomania um, is, is sort of a methodological critique of the way that these scholars are thinking about the Book of Mormon is, as an as an ancient text, um, because they uh, the people who say that the the Book of Mormon comes from the 19th century say there are better explanations for these events, you know. Um, as one famous example, the 
uh, King Benjamin's speech at the at the temple there. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, scholars who are arguing for an ancient context say, look, this is just like these New Year's festivals that that happened in the ancient world. And everyone would gather to hear the king speak or what, you know, and, mm -hmm. and finding, you know, th things like things like that. And, uh, you know, 19th century people would say that looks just like a church revival you know, yeah. where everybody gathered to hear the preacher speak. And so both sides are really kind of trying to draw parallels of how, how these events are being described in the Book of Mormon. What's the best cultural context for explaining them? Is it something in the ancient world or is it something of the 19th century? And, um, uh, and, and the sort of methodological questions around comparison and how do we do comparison becomes a kind of tense issue between these two different schools. That's extremely interesting and kind of goes to show, I think, you know, there's a, we go, we, we find what we're looking for often. And so you're saying when the historical camp says we can find all of these parallels, the naturalist camp says, well, that's interesting because so can we in the 19th century. Yeah. They're just, they're just <laughs> different parallels. <laughs> so, and and both yeah. sides are accusing the other of mm -hmm. preconceived notions of uh, yeah. you, you only think that because you're applying this particular interpretive method. If you apply this method, then you come to entirely different results. And to a certain extent, they're also both right about that. You know, if you uh, any text that you apply a certain historical uh, 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 model onto, yeah, you're going to come up with that. That sure. is the result. Yeah, that's fascinating. Incredibly interesting. Talk for a second with us about the controversy that was raised um, during this period of time around the the second Isaiah is what they called it. Yeah, yeah. So this becomes, um, you know, one of the uh, you know, sort of controversial issues that goes back all the way to 100 years ago. Again, B.H. Mm -hmm. Roberts and Sidney Sperry and, and one of Sidney Sperry's students are, are sort of already noticing and, and thinking about this. And it represents a larger um, uh, issue of how to think about the Book of Mormon, which is uh, that there are a number of anachronisms or things that don't quite fit into the timeline here, right? Um, and uh, in biblical scholarship, and uh, I'll be try to be brief about this, pretty much the consensus today is that the book of Isaiah is actually not a unified book as it as it appears in our Bible, but actually is written at different stages in time. Um, first Isaiah or the original historical Isaiah is from uh, the the, the pre-exilic period. And it makes sense then that that uh, Nephi could I, I potentially be quoting from that figure who lived, you know, 120 years before Nephi and uh, his writings were collected and so on. But there's another author of Isaiah that represents the second half of Isaiah, and uh, and then there's even a third Isaiah as well, um, who seems to come from a totally different time period and specifically comes from the time period after Israel had been in captivity in Babylon, which if you know the Book of Mormon narrative, that's after Nephi and Lehi have left <laughs> completely, right? So it would be impossible for them to know those texts. Um, the the sort of faithful Latter-day Saint answer for a long, long time was, oh, no, 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 no. The Book of Mormon quotes those texts. Therefore, they must be authentic to Isaiah, 
you know, uh, they must they must be pre-exilic. They must have been right. available because the Book of Mormon quotes them. And other people saying, no, this is a this is one of those major anachronisms. So there's a huge debate about Isaiah and, and the dating of Isaiah. I'll, I'll just briefly mention that the most recent issue of Dialogue, the fall issue of 2022, has an amazing new article on this by Colby Townsend, who really updates a lot of the scholarship and complicates the question of first Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah, uh, in ways that hadn't been done before. And so I, I recommend readers to kind of follow that one if they're really interested in this question. Oh, yeah. But again, it sort of points to this issue that it's not only Isaiah, it's also uh, the Apostle Paul is being mm -hmm. quoted in the Book of Mormon all the time, you know, without being attributed to him, you know. Right. Um, so what do we do with all of these things that the Nephites couldn't know about? You know, they couldn't have read Paul and especially couldn't be a quoting him anonymously. You know, how do we explain those linguistic uh, uh, overlaps there? And second Isaiah becomes, again, a sort of controversial one because it pits Latter-day Saint scholars against um, uh, biblical scholars on the dating of Isaiah, for instance. And so there's a lot of scholarship that's kind of come out around that. And and uh, uh, as I said, we're still writing articles as of last month about it. So that's incredibly fascinating. And you're saying you want to keep this short. And I'm like, but do you have to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I think it's some so people's eyes. Nobody gets through <laughs> Isaiah. You know, start talking about Isaiah. People fall asleep. You know? That's true. So. <laughs> we are very conditioned to fall asleep at Isaiah. You, you're that's not right. wrong there. But let me ask you this, just this may be a little bit of a teaser for the article. Hopefully everybody will go go out and get this dialogue article. But I have to know, is current scholarship proving a second and a third Isaiah even more strongly than before? Because I know this particular argument is an old argument. It's many, yeah. many, many years old. Can you just talk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So, so it's really been since the late 1800s that scholars have divided um, Isaiah into three parts. Uh, wow. And that consensus has more or less held uh, wow. their... Uh, where where the conversation has developed in the last few decades and where Mormon scholarship on this topic hadn't really developed is to complicate the idea of a stable first Isaiah. So remember when I said that, you know, everybody kind of agreed that first Isaiah, uh, yes, it's plausible that Nephi could have had that. But many scholars have come back to say, no, second Isaiah is actually editing first Isaiah. Isaiah and adding and changing and putting things in different orders and, you know, mm -hmm. a couple of lines here and there. Um, and third Isaiah then does it again. So it at least goes through two layers of, of kind of editing. So it's not just the case that second and third Isaiah are tacking on their writings at the end, but rather that they're rewriting first Isaiah as well. And so this complicates then the quote, the long quotations from Isaiah chapters two to 14 that show up in second Nephi, for instance, um, they wouldn't have it looked like, according to the, the most recent article and, and this analysis, Isaiah wouldn't have looked like the Isaiah that that Nephi is quoting at that stage, even because it's it's it would have been edited at a later point in order to look like that. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that it would have possibly looked like the Isaiah that Joseph Smith read in his own Bible in the mid 1800s, though. Is that what I'm hearing? Or, absolutely, no. absolutely. Ba basically, yeah. the the, yeah. the Isaiah that we get in the Book of Mormon, mm -hmm. uh, first and second, and some third Isaiah, as yeah. most recent article argues, is from the King James version sure. uh, rather than an, an ancient version of Isaiah. Which is what would be on the side of the 
proponents of the naturalistic argument. Right. It, 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 it's one of one of several, you know, quote unquote, anachronisms. Again, those things yeah. that that are uh, historically implausible for uh, for an ancient context. Yeah, I gotcha. OK, let's move on, although this is incredibly fascinating, but we've got so much more to talk about. Let's talk a little bit for a minute, if we may, about this concept of chiasmus and how that has been offered as a proof for the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. So uh, so a guy named Jack Welch or John Welch is, is, is his publishing name when he's a missionary in Germany in the uh, 19 late 1960s or, or maybe even early 1970s. I think it was probably the 1960s. He is reading a lot of biblical scholarship and he's reading about um, uh, ancient Hebrew literature and the different poetic forms that uh, that that are there, and, and one of the famous ones is chiasmus, and uh, the idea is that there's a kind of literary formula that ancient Hebrew poetry would follow, and 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 sometimes narratives would follow this as well. It would make it easier to remember, and it's basically. Uh, you know, you repeat a line and then you, uh, sorry, you, you, you repeat a line in sort of inverse order. So mm -hmm. you go from, you know, topic A to topic B to topic C, then back to topic B and then back to topic A again, sort of this sort of reverse order. And um, he says uh, that, you know, he's, he's reading about that and he discovers it in the Book of Mormon and that there are several instances of chiasmus in the Book of Mormon, this ancient Hebrew literary form. And this is, you know, deeply inspiring to him. It's, it's again, along those lines of trying to find parallels between the Book mm -hmm. of Mormon and other ancient contexts. Um, and uh, Jack Welch ends up founding farms. He's the he's sort of one of the co-founders out of all of this. And uh, these sort of literary parallels uh, uh, sort of uh, between uh, the Book of Mormon and, and ancient um, uh, cultural, uh, ancient Hebrew literature and culture become, you know, one of the sort of signature elements of that sort of apologetic uh, approach. Um, so that was a little more than 50 years ago or so. And then like chiasmus scholarship or chiasmus scholarship then like just exploded and everybody was talking about it. everybody was trying to find a new one. And I found a new one here and, <laughs> and, you know, and, 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 um, and so but then there's a lot of pushback and debate about this, you know, and, and it turns out that, you know, people write in chiasmus today and people writing in chiasmus in Joseph Smith's time as well. It's actually without having a specific name, a relatively common formula that people use to think about their their and organize their ideas. Um, and uh, so then th this becomes the other issue. Is this a 19th century thing or is this an ancient thing? And, and scholars go back and forth and debate on on that issue as well. So they started by using this as a proof that it was ancient in origin because chiasmus is biblical or is it just it, in found it's found in ancient texts also It's biblical but it's found in other in other ancient texts again it was a sort of common literary formula mm -hmm. in the ancient world and so you know there there are yeah. Greek and Roman you know examples and and Egyptian examples and you know all kind of, it's it, it's not uniquely Hebrew it, uh, mm -hmm. it's it's widely found and and in a lot of different time periods as well it wasn't only you know right at around the time of Levi Levi I keep saying that Lehi and Nephi <laughs> uh but um, yeah. but is you know widely found in the ancient world, yeah. Okay, so this kind of circles us back to the problem of parallelomania, which is mm -hmm. deriving a huge amount of significance around something that may not, in fact, actually be as significant after the naturalists push back and say, "Hey, that may be true, but that you can't deduce by nature of the fact that that's there 
that it means that it is historically ancient. Yeah. So so I would say that the people who kind of push back against it, push back on two fronts, one to challenge whether or not the the examples actually are uh, oh. examples of chiasmus in some mm -hmm. cases. Right. And in others to uh, to to challenge whether or not that's evidence of of an ancient historical context, again, given other. Uh, you know, anachronisms and so on. Uh, you know, is this uh, does this provide the best explanatory model for an ancient Book of Mormon, or or is a 19th century option still the best one, in spite of supposed parallels there? Right. Gotcha. Okay, one more thing I want to talk about in this episode, and then we're going to pick up and have the rest of our conversation in our next episode. Ooh. But this is a big one, so this is I, I reserved a few minutes for this one. Uh, the whole big topic that is a, a little bit more recent in nature around uh, geography and DNA. That's yeah. a big one. So, yeah, go ahead and I'm going to just let you go on this one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so um, one of the models that uh, that apologists are sort of developing for thinking about the Book of Mormon in, again, more sophisticated, more complex ways um, in that uh, 1960s, 1970s period is to uh, redefine the geographical scope of the, the that the Book of Mormon uh, describes. And uh, John L. Sorensen, uh, he's associated with farms later on. He's a, an anthropologist at BYU who specializes in, in Central American uh, uh, anthropology and archaeology. Um, develops a, a theory that there is a limited geography to the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, does this by reading and say, you know, look, they're saying it only takes like three days to walk between Nephite territory and, and Lamanite territory. And that can't possibly be North America and South America, the hemispheric model that uh, had sort of dominated uh, up until then. And so you have you know, most Latter-day Saints before that believed it was a sort of hemispheric model that the North and South, you know, the land of the North and the land of South was North and South America. And he starts to say, no, this is a pretty small territory. It's probably about the size of the land of Israel. If you kind of me measure the the uh, the distances that they're describing here, uh, you know, maybe a few hundred miles at most. Um, and so uh, he, he kind of then theorizes about that. And, and related to that is then also the idea that the Nephites and the Lamanites are not the only people who are inhabiting uh, these uh, the, the lands described in the Book of Mormon. And they find evidence in the Book of Mormon that there seem to be other peoples that are kind of alluded to, you know, and even the idea that the Lamanites might be the native population that gets mingled in with uh, with, you know, Laman's descendants and so on. Um, uh, sort of indigenous, the indigenous people and the Nephites are the are the non-indigenous people who have come to to inhabit these lands. So uh, really a kind of revolutionary approach to thinking about the, the scope of the Book of Mormon. And this helps to answer a lot of the, at the time, a lot of the critical arguments against the Book of Mormon, that it was implausible and so on, that Native Americans weren't descended from, you know, from the uh, uh, from the ancient Hebrews, right? Uh, you know, uh, you can't say that the the tribes from New York or Ohio or Southern Utah, you know, all all belong to the same culture. All of these kind of problems. They say, no, no, no. We're actually talking about a much more limited uh, understanding here. So, uh, in that that kind of leads to then a lot of critical discussion about that is that a plausible theory does the text actually support that theory and other people kind of pushing back and forth on this mm -hmm. you know um 
But this kind of comes to a head then in the early 2000s as uh, DNA technology and DNA uh, uh, sampling becomes much more uh, uh, sophisticated, much more readily available. And we can start to do kind of population studies yeah. on DNA. And uh, very soon into this, people are saying, well, this is going to have a lot of uh, application for the Book of Mormon. It's going to prove the Book of Mormon is true because <laughs> we're going to find out that, you know, uh, the, the Navajo are actually, you know, uh, Middle Eastern. Right. Or we're going to find out that the Peruvian. That's the hope. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. And of course, very quickly, that turns out not to be true at all. The uh, other models of, you know, kind of Asian migration into the Americas become, you know, sort of. Uh, uh, evidenced by the the DNA. And so then there has to be a kind of response to this is like, well, how do we explain the fact that the DNA doesn't seem to support the, the, the theory either? So you start to get, you know, geographical archaeology. We, we briefly mentioned archaeology as a kind of failed approach right. uh, early on. You can still take Book of Mormon archaeological tours, by the way, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, they're they're not... Uh, um, they're not really scientifically credible, I guess we could say, right? Um, yeah. But uh, but so so archaeology and then DNA becomes, as, as we mentioned, a sort of new battleground for how do we make sense of finding the Lamanites? You know, supposedly yeah. the Lamanites are still around. The whole the Book of Mormon is written to modern day Lamanites. Well, who are these people, right? <laughs> um, and uh, right around this time, the church actually modifies the introduction to the Book of Mormon, which used to say the Lamanites are the ancestors of the of the Native Americans or the, the inhabitants of this continent or so. And then it says they're the among I forget exactly. I, I forget. You, the readers will know. But like among the ancestors, it's a of little, the people. it gets much vaguer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, so there's even some kind of backing away from yeah. from some of those claims as an acknowledgement that uh, that uh, this is a controversial issue. The church actually ends up putting out uh, one of the gospel topic essays on DNA in the Book of Mormon as well for people who want to kind of uh, uh, read that to sort of see where where these issues have kind of landed in the last. Uh, I think that one probably came out about seven years ago now or so. So the I did read that gospel topic essay. Uh, it's been a, a maybe a year though, so I'm trying to remember because it, it, what you're setting the stage for is that it does feel in some ways like the opponents are taking you know are taking over on this one, and it's like ah uh, you know it's hard to argue with DNA, um, and some of these other arguments are starting to feel a little bit like they are holding a little bit more water with on the on the side of it being um, a 19th century piece of of literature. And perhaps even a very good one at that. Now, let's just talk for a quick second about, I don't want to put you on the spot, Taylor, if you don't remember the specifics of this, but can you remember what the essay says to sort of um, make credible the possibility that although DNA cannot be our proof, still this is a credible ancient piece of scripture, notwithstanding that problem? Yeah, I, I I did not review the essay, so I'm going a little <laughs> off of memory. But yeah. the, the kind of primary approach that uh, that I would say has kind of dominated the the DNA issue, and in my understanding, again, not having reviewed it, uh, so people can correct me in, <laughs> in you know emails later if they want, um, <laughs> is that um, uh, the DNA sort of gets diluted and disappears to such a degree. You know, we're talking about like a dozen people here, right? Can we really expect to find, again, if we're going on the models that that many apologists are putting forward, that actually the Nephites and the Lamanites are 
um, a very small part of a population that gets intermingled into an indigenous people here, can we really expect to find sort of traces of those DNA? And so the the sort of circle of what what we're looking, what's the target that we need to hit in order to find historical evidence kind of shrinks a, a little bit there. That's, that's my understanding of the kind of primary way that, it, that it's dealt with. I'm remembering as you are talking about it, I'm having actually a memory of in the essays, there are multiple uh, diagrams or graphs, pictorial things that kind of talk about the sort of the dilution problem, the sort of spitting into the ocean situation where if you do integrate more tribes and more communities and more big, bigger populations, which in and of itself is a, is a variation from the way I think at least I was taught. Uh, but then as soon as you sort of blend in a whole bunch of other kinds of um, communities of people and then pass all of that time and then there's the spreading and the death, it, that's their plausible. That's how they kind of try to prove plausibility that, well, they, you can't prove that it isn't true because you can't find the DNA is sort of where they is where they land in the essays. Am I getting I'm getting that right? I think I, I, I think so. I, yeah. I sort of, you know, we don't need the DNA. The DNA doesn't prove one thing one way or the other, you know, and then ultimately, I think where the church often lands is this. This is the word of God, too. And so mm -hmm. the historical arguments and the DNA arguments are not. The primary way that we are supposed to engage the Book of Mormon, we're supposed to engage it as a spiritual text and pray about it, and and that's what you you get. And so, in a way, you know, there is a, a kind of sometimes resistance mm -hmm. to historical arguments and historicity as a way of approaching the text, which is we'll maybe get into the next episode. Yes, uh, several people who don't like these whole debates uh, about yes. the historicity as well, which in some ways is actually quite interesting and fascinating from. From, from the perspective of recognizing like the whole creation of farms is around this fascination with let's go look for the pyramids or let's go see how we can sort of prove historically um, the origins of the people of the Book of Mormon. And then on the other hand, there's the like reticence to like, well, if it doesn't go well for us, then, then that starts to feel like, well, let's resist that a little bit and and just move more over to the possibility that we don't need to prove that anyways. Maybe it was never a good idea in the first place because it's a it's a book of scripture and it's okay for it to not be provable scientifically or historically. So I can I, I get the tension there. I get the awkwardness. Yeah, I, I think that that describes a lot of what the last hundred years in the church have been <laughs> around how we approach the Book of Mormon yeah. is a uh, sometimes exuberant enthusiasm for <laughs> yeah. finding the proof, you know, and uh, and then that gets scaled back uh, over time. And then we say, oh, we don't need the proof. It's this is how you engage. And I think there's a kind of internal debate in the church about how we how we sort of balance that seesaw. Gotcha. Beautiful place to stop. We will pick this conversation up in our next episode, everyone. And I am so excited that I get to share this with you because I am so like I'm learning myself about this. This is a complex topic. I've, you know, as many of you know, I've been Orthodox much of my life. I've read the Book of Mormon a million times. I've heard little whispers here or there of how it's probably a lot more complicated than I was led to believe early on. And so I'm wanting to share this with everyone so that we can be earnest seekers of truth, light, wisdom, and um, and just grapple with hard questions and that we can recognize as um, people in and around the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints we can wrestle with challenging things and be complex thinkers. And that is absolutely in keeping with who we are as children of divine parents. And that's what Taylor and I are doing today. So, so good to be with everybody. If you have not already done so, would you please rate and review this podcast and uh, follow it 
if you are not a follower yet. Also, if you're interested in one of my small support groups that walks people through faith expansion, I have uh, several groups. Uh, jump on one of my wait lists by reaching out to me at info at valeriehammaker.com and on Instagram at Latter-day Struggles Podcast. And last but not least, as I've mentioned before, Latter-day Struggles is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. And I, there's, I'm, I'm going to have you, Taylor, shut us, um, close us down today by talking about your own podcast. Tell everyone why they need to go to the Dialogue Podcast. Yeah, we're, we, we, the Dialogue Podcast offers a ton of different stuff. We have essays on or uh, podcasts on various topics where we dive in deep to like the Book of Mormon scholarship we've talked about evolution, uh, race issues in, in the church. And uh, we also do out loud issues with some of the great fiction and poetry and personal essays uh, with our uh, that come out in the quarterly journal. And uh, we also then have a weekly gospel study, or actually bi-weekly now, gospel study, uh, where we get great teachers to come in and, and follow the Come Follow Me thing. So you get a lot of different variety in the in the dialogue podcast. Really encourage people to check it out. I want to just hi highlight what Taylor just said. I know a lot of the people that I work directly with in faith expansion and who are really wrestling with how to have a congruent relationship with the church find themselves really struggling in that second hour of church if you're still going. So if that is something that you struggle with, um, an alternative is the dialogue podcast that just that Taylor just mentioned has this incredibly beautiful, nuanced Come Follow Me lesson every other week that I have I've listened to and really grown from and enjoyed a lot. So real big plug for that one. So jump on there and we will see you all next time. Thanks everybody. Dialogue Podcast Network.